You're listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast. Hi, I'm David Manti, and welcome to the Today in Manufacturing podcast. With me today are Jeff Ranke and Anna Wells. We each have about 15 years of experience covering the manufacturing industry. Every week, we take the top five, <clears throat> the top five stories from our websites and discuss them, as well as the implications they might have on the industry going forward. Before we get started, please make sure to like, subscribe, and even share the podcast. You can also help us out by giving us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use. Finally, to email the podcast, just email David, Anna, or Jeff at IEN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. How are you doing today, Jeff? I'm good, David, and I'm not going to throw you by asking how you're doing. I know that kind of just got us off to a bad start last week, so I'm just going to breeze right past that. Mm-hmm. It's a Anna? loaded it's a loaded question for David, so don't <laughs> don't go there. Anna? Nothing for me, thanks. Very good. Moving on to the first story this week. I am fine. Thank you for asking, guys. <laughs> <laughs> um the first story this week, Americans still won't pay more for USA-made goods. In 2017, a Reuters Ipsos poll revealed that 70% of Americans believe it is very important or somewhat important to buy U.S. goods, but only 37% or but 37% said they wouldn't pay more for those goods. The poll was recently reissued, and despite supply chain challenges and fears over many critical goods being subpar or unavailable, the results are virtually unchanged. 69% of respondents still feel made in the USA is, quote, somewhat important. However, that group that won't pay a penny more for those products did not budge, holding strong at 37%. 63% of Americans want U.S. agencies to buy American-made products in general, even if they cost significantly more. Anna, your thoughts on this story? Yeah, I think it's a little discouraging that we've already apparently forgotten about the supply chain issues we experienced in the early part of the pandemic where we were like literally not getting enough masks and gloves uh, to go around, for example. And there was so much outcry at the time about simplifying these very complex supply chains and focusing on domestic manufacturing of critical products. And now that the dust has settled and the question is again posed, would you pay more for an American produced product because it will cost more in almost all cases? We're like, nah. (laughs) Nope, not even a little. Because the survey results, as you said, showed the exact same percentage of people in 2017 who said they wouldn't pay a cent more, 37% Mm -hmm. of those surveyed. And um, an additional 26% said that they'd only pay a 5% premium, which let's be honest, you know, that's just not, that's not gonna be enough, right? Mm -hmm. So, but it's a conundrum, really. I mean, for all the lip service paid to U.S. manufacturing and American made, what the survey results show is that Americans really only expect the government to pay a premium. And the premium for individuals would, in some cases, be significant, um, as Business Insider pointed out in 2017 in response to some of Trump's campaign language, where he suggested, for example, that he could get Apple to make iPhones in America. I think we remember that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was determined that the, that would more than double the cost of an iPhone. So I think the government would need to subsidize American manufacturing in such a significant way for consumers to truly support it, not just say they support it. And mm-hmm. it's really hard to envision, you know, that kind of investment across the board. Um, I guess my thinking is more in line with uh, one of our commenters, Jonathan Allen, who said, I make purchasing dis- choices more on ethics of how they're produced and the community that produced them. Uh, I guess I kind of make my choices that way as well about um, what sort of corporate citizens some of the companies are. Um, Jeff, what do you think? Uh, 
Since it's our money anyway, should they use it to buy American goods? Is that the answer? More tax money spent on it? Well, I mean, it's sort of, you can play both sides of that because you want the government to be responsible as well financially. Mm-hmm. So if there is an option of equal value and it's, it happens to be made someplace else, you, you want them to be responsible with your tax dollars. So there's, there's criticism that can come from any front when you start talking about government spending and, and made in the USA. Obviously, in an ideal situation, in a perfect world, yeah, mm-hmm. we're buying everything here. I think the timing of this survey may have skewed people's feedback a little bit. You know, we're looking at unemployment rates yeah, anywhere from two to two and a half percent higher than they were a year ago. So I think some of those folks may be feeling different financial pressures at this time. I also think overall, when we talk about visibility and understanding of U.S. manufacturing and what it really means to our economy mm-hmm. and our global competitiveness, I think it's still a relatively new message. I know that sounds kind of silly to, to some of the folks that we're talking to on this podcast and listening, but really from a general overall perception, I still think there's a lot of negative stereotypes related to U.S. manufacturing, either from bad corporate citizens from an environmental perspective and what it mm-hmm. does, not really grasping what it means to our economy from a jobs perspective as well. I still think looking very broadly at American society, that conversation is still in its very early stages. And there's still a lot of education to be given to, or to, to be shared in terms of really understanding that, yes, you are paying more when you buy American, but the ramifications down the line are so extraordinary in terms of what it means to our economy, to job growth, and, and growing U.S. companies. Well, there, there are a couple of things there. Like, uh, I mean, maybe it is just that the average consumer, their needs can't be met by American manufacturers right now. Uh, because there are still some people, uh, some commenters on the site that said, you know, I'm willing to spend more, but I expect the quality to be there. And another co- uh, commenter, Jay Meisner, said, I personally will buy USA Made if I can find it for both home and work. But unfortunately, many times I can't find USA Made and the quality isn't there. So A, there are quality issues. Other people were talking about trying to buy clothing, stuff like that. And uh, I just sometimes, I mean, is there even a domestic manufacturer for some of those things? Well, and we got into this a little bit with steel a couple mm-hmm. of years. You know, that was one of the things that Trump really pushed for was no more Chinese steel or limiting Chinese steel or putting big tariffs on Chinese steel. We don't have enough production capacity within the U.S. to mm-hmm. handle the demand. So there's always going to be a need to be a global sourcing uh, market mm-hmm. uh, as far as where the U.S. goes in terms of purchasing. So I think what, what this was really looking at is just the overall impression and would they be willing to pay more for U.S.-made goods I think some folks are being honest, and I think they're just looking at their current financial situation and offering legitimate feedback. Let's be real. I mean, we've done how many purchasing studies for our audience, and we can even lead them down that road of wanting them to say, no, we're going to look for value, and we're going to look for quality, and we want timeliness. Cost is a lower-tier purchasing consideration. But then they answer the question honestly, and and price is always an issue at at whatever level of purchasing. Right. Um, Oh, go ahead. Sorry, I would just... I was interested to see how many people, you know, were being completely candid here. And you wonder in a survey like this, if there's a lot of people that are sort of wishfully, you know, like, like in their minds, feel like they're doing this or they don't want to admit that they're not doing this. So maybe didn't answer truthfully. So my guess is that the, the percentage in reality is probably higher. And that obviously the evidence of that is in the, um, in the massive trade deficit that we see continuing to balloon every year and the growth of, of companies <clears throat> that sell a lot of foreign made goods. Um, you know, I think that 37% who say they won't pay up anymore is probably a low estimate. Yeah. Is it, uh, kind of like putting, 
you want to be your best self during a survey? We were just like, I mean, there was that one week I worked out three to five times a week. <laughs> there you yeah, go. Exactly. Um, no, I uh, I thought the same thing. And I thought that's why we had such a discussion on the websites um, in terms of people, you know, kind of struggling with, I will buy American. And then people responding saying like, I will too, if I can find it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, our fourth most popular story this week was a new uh, new robot coming out of Boston Dynamics, a new robot that moves 800 cases per hour. Boston Dynamics has a new robot called Stretch. The new robot is designed to move boxes around warehouses and distribution centers, and it can move 800 cases per hour, picking up boxes around 50 pounds each. The timing couldn't be more perfect as demand in e-commerce continues to surge, but the robot can adapt as facility layouts change so it doesn't require any fixed automation infrastructure and it could be a solution to injury-prone case handling tasks and it's not nearly as creepy as robots that we've seen out of uh, Boston Dynamics before like the handle which looked like a you know automated alien and uh, the Atlas humanoid robot which just looked too much like a person for people so uh, yeah and a uh, sort of a positive story yeah, I think this might be that elusive positive safety story that we've been begging for. Um, <laughs> we found it. We found it. Thank you, Boston. I mean, it's important. You know, it's an important point. Boston Dynamics makes that this would take over some injury-prone case handling tasks. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that Boston Dynamics has other robots, as you mentioned, and some of the applications that we've seen from them have been traditionally more dangerous tasks. So Boston Dynamics actually has a history of showing that they are making inroads with this problem. Their spot mini robot has taken jobs patrolling oil rigs. Mm -hmm. And even at the early part of the pandemic, spot mini was being used at Brigham and Young Women's Hospital for like remote triage of patients suspected of having COVID-19. Elsewhere, it was checking vitals. And the company has hoped to employ the robots to carry out like disinfection type programs using UV lights, for example. So, you know, automation companies often point to the safety benefit of robots and cobots as a way to kind of get their foot in the door of our consciousness, I think, before the eventual robot takeover. Mm. Um, But, I mean, it's definitely on the sell sheet, right, to emphasize how these robots can perform dangerous or repetitive tasks and the kind of jobs that are, you know, really rough on humans. So even if the idea of taking jobs from humans rubs you the wrong way, um, you've got to acknowledge that benefit, I think. Right. And, I mean, uh I feel like these are going to be slightly more expensive than an exoskeleton, but, uh, you know, we're still looking for an automated solution to make these jobs a little bit safer for humans. Uh, Jeff, what were you thinking about stretch? Well, I, th- I think it, first of all, I think you brought two huge points in, in writing up the story. Obviously the e-commerce boom. I mean, that's something pandemic just gave a real solid push to and continues to be a, a big driver in wherever that distribution center or warehouse is and whatever facet, not just Amazon, simple, um, you know, our customers in the industrial sector getting product out to folks. Uh, the other thing you also mentioned was how it's it's palatable in terms of how it presents itself. It's, oh, yeah. It's, it's a robot, but it's very functional looking as opposed to trying to sort of appease some of those aesthetic elements. So I think that way it'll be received a little bit more um, <laughs> um, um, better by, by the workforce, which is interesting, you know, looking at looking at this type of labor, um, jobs within the warehouse distribution center have doubled in the last roughly 11 years. There's over like 1.2 million jobs right now having to deal with warehouse distribution center storage facilities. So there's obviously a huge market here for this product, for this type of robot. It's also interesting when you look at the expansion of some of these, again, e-commerce type of businesses such as Amazon, 
And with this growth in the number of these types of workers, you know, we we did a fair amount of coverage this week on Amazon's union vote down mm-hmm. in Alabama. So it's just interesting timing that you have this robot that would potentially um, take the strain off of human workforce, translated to a robot, talking about more workers, you're talking about them unionizing potentially, which would potentially drive up your human capital costs at these types of facilities. So there is that sort of weighing that you need to do between the having people there and creating jobs, bringing in automation and robots. Ideally, in this type of situation, what it should lead to is taking the quote-unquote grunt work away from from people where they can be damaging and difficult and using people more for quality control, order accuracy, getting things out the door in a better fashion. Okay. So hopefully that is the way that this would go and this robot could be huge. I mean, we've all had bad Amazon orders. Well, I, right? And they just refund the money like nothing. <laughs> just like, oh, just have it back mm-hmm. and keep it too. And keep it. Yeah, just like, well, just send it to me for free then. <laughs> um, no, it's. Uh, I'm glad that you actually mentioned where these other workers could go because to me, I was thinking like, where else in the facility would these, uh, you know, dock workers go? And I mean, I've seen other automated uh, as automation goes into warehouses. You don't. You just see fewer humans there. You know, uh, not that they're completely dark, but uh, dark facilities. Uh, and also to the aesthetic of the robot. I think that was very careful. Like it was, mm-hmm. it's carefully yeah. the same size as a pallet, square shaped. It's got like an incredibly um, powerful robotic arm that's coming out of it. It makes very fluid movements, but they're still not as smooth as some of the movements that we saw on like other robots, I think intentionally. And it, they were very careful about the examples that they showed. You know, it was just like it picks up the box, it puts it on the conveyor, and it's done. You know, other than pulling the conveyor belt into the truck, I was just like, oh, that might be too much for people. I mean, this technology, and Anna can speak to this probably better than than I can in, in her experience in dealing with the industrial distribution side of things, but this technology is not new. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a lot of LIDAR-type driven robots zooming around warehouses mm-hmm. right now, assisting with pick orders and helping to them to be more accurate. And I think overall, the sector has been very receptive to this type of technology. It'll just be interesting to make sure that it's it's increased and added at the right pace to ensure that it's not just technology for technology's sake. Yeah. And, you know, speaking to the industrial distribution space, what we see is it's still incredibly fragmented. You have big operations, but you have a lot of small ones as well. And I think until uh, robots and cobots um, become more, uh, the the business use case is more clearly defined and the prices are lower um, then you're not going to see a lot of those in some of those smaller operations and smaller warehouses. I wonder if that's who they're targeting because they did say they have that partner program. And I got to assume that they're not as tr- going after an Amazon warehouse as a partner for the partner program. You know, they're looking for maybe one of those smaller distributors just to see how it kind of works, you know, on maybe not as mm-hmm. uh, high trafficked sure. company. Yeah. Uh, the next most popular story this week Nearly a week later, a massive ship freed in the Suez Canal. On Monday, tugboats, helped by the tides, were able to free the massive evergreen ship from the Suez Canal. It was stuck for the better part of a week, and the traffic jam held up $9 billion a day in global trade and further strained supply chains. At least 367 vessels were backed up, carrying everything from crude to cattle. Peter Berdowski, CEO of Busk Alice, Busk Alice, 
The salvage firm hired to extract the Ever Given said, we pulled it off. You did, Peter. And the entire world was watching. Jeff, did you celebrate this as well? What I mean, this story, this has, I'm trying to think of the last time we had an incident that had this type of like lifeline with it. I mean, just kept going and just kept having more interesting information come out of it. Yeah. Um, Obviously not at the scale of like Deepwater Horizon or something, but it's, it's, it's kind of like that because there just keeps more and more stuff coming out of here. And now that they've actually got the ship free, what this really comes down to to me is they're going to figure out whose fault it was. They have to figure yeah. that somebody's got to be oh, true. at fault. After, after you celebrated, all the fingers started <laughs> pointing at each other, just like, oh, you're paying for it. Yeah. I mean, there, and it's a ton of money. We, we talked about the numbers last last uh, week in terms of how much this was on a daily basis. I think, what we say, $400 million an hour, $9 billion a day, something like that, in terms of what was held up within the canal. So to me now, all right, we've, <laughs> they've got the ship free. They've mm-hmm. got to figure out whose fault it was, but how far does that go then? Because there was how many ships did they say was was sitting out there? Four hundred. Uh, yeah, yeah, over four hundred ships waiting to get in. Some of them have, but and I was looking at an article on Business Insider, and they were talking about the winners and losers, sort of from this situation, because there were some winners. Mm-hmm. One of them that they pointed out was all the container shipping companies, all these big companies that were battling a lot of issues, a lot of challenges, a lot of financial hardship or downturn, not hardship during the pandemic because ports were closed. So they're struggling to recoup. Well, now they, they've got so much pent up demand. Mm-hmm. They're probably going to increase their prices because people need stuff quicker. They need more of it so they can regain some of what they lost during the pandemic. But then those costs are going to be shifted on to other people down the line, distributors, retailers, and ultimately customers. So if you're a struggling retailer who's already struggling because of the pandemic, and now you've got increased shipping costs, because yeah. of this, are they also going to join the fray in terms of pointing fingers? I mean, whoever ultimately ends up at fault or being blamed for this, and who knows how long it's going to take, how many people are they going to have, and horrible analogy, but lining up to, <laughs> yeah. to get at them? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's an interesting dynamic in this story. I mean, it's it's not over yet. Can't they just blame, you know, can't they just blame an act from God, an act of God and just be like, uh, you know, like, uh, uh, Faith, faithful listener Doug said to us, it was just the wind. I mean, so if the wind's at fault, right? Don't you just call it a wash, right? Because that's just, what humans do, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, you know what? We're all going to take, we're all going to yeah. take a hit on this one, guys. Uh, Anna, I mean, that seems realistic, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Jeff's right. There's a lot of far reaching implications here. And it's, it's weird how we've taken such a lighthearted tone on the whole situation collectively as a society. Like it's the hilarious diversion that we all needed or mm-hmm. something. I don't know. Like bring on the toilet jokes. We got <laughs> <laughs> like Google has cartoon boats scrolling across um, the top of the screen. If you search for Suez Canal, just a heads up. And then I don't know. It's just like, like the situation's actually pretty dire. I mean, so the ship is free, but Egypt is now seeking a billion dollars um, to cover what is being described as the income the country lost on transit fees, as well as the cost of the tugboat, as well as the damage that was actually done to the canal in six oh. days, um, you know, like the dredging and all that stuff. A billion dollars. Um, so that's happening. Um, and then also, I, I just read that um, there are uh, about 200,000 animals are likely to die after being stuck in the bottleneck without enough food or water to last them the rest of their journey. Um, Gabriel Pond, the EU director of the NGO Animals International Organization, said 
that this would be the worst maritime animal welfare tragedy in history and it could be unavoidable. So um, I guess let's remember too that the strange situation is like a a little bit more catastrophic than a punchline. Like I'm not saying that to you guys, I'm just saying in general, like I feel like (laughs) you're saying it in general to us, to you (laughs) in general about others. You guys are great. I don't change a thing. Um, no, I just, I think that like, it's, you know, it's like, it was a weird situation. So we're all like, whoa, and then, but, but like in the end, it's actually, you know, pretty terrible. Some of the stuff that's happening as a, as a result of this. No, I think that's why, uh, people are approaching it with humor because if you think of like the actual implications, it gets pretty dark. Quick. It's too, I know it's too, yeah. We don't I mean, want to talk about that. Stuff. Well, and it's just, you don't even know what happens to that livestock. Um, mm-hmm. I, one thing that I found interesting was that I didn't know how many people or how many ships decided to take a detour yeah. and that uh, they took a 30, 100 mile detour. That's going to cost these ships another, you know, more hundreds of thousands of dollars in fuel and other costs. Oh. And, but, but one of the things that, and this was again, that business insider article, um, they said a lot of those costs actually be covered by insurance. Oh, so it doesn't okay. even hurt the shippers that much. Again, they're actually potentially, coming out ahead on this because demand and price increases. So. I was just, just to see a detour yeah. and just be like, you know, what did they have? Like the, Around the, the, continent. the orange sign with the uh, arrow pointed left, just, yeah. hey, just, uh, you know, a couple days. Yeah. Those poor, journey. like people staffing those ships are like, I'm going to be three weeks late now getting home or whatever. It's just right. Oh. I, I don't even know how much longer that takes to cover. Um, the second most popular story this week, SpaceX again. SpaceX launches a test rocket and it breaks apart before landing. Another week, another SpaceX failure. This time, it was a failed landing that caused the futuristic bullet-shaped starship to break apart right before touchdown. The camera froze and the dense fog obscured views, but explosions were heard and debris rained down quite horrifically. Elon Musk tweeted, At least the crater's in the right space. Starship is now four for four on failures and explosions. Uh, Anna, who <laughs> I, is to, like who is charged with picking up all the debris? You enjoyed saying failure so many times. You really <laughs> failure. I thought I was the anti Musk guy. Yeah, man, you got to chew it. No, I. Uh, <laughs> it was just. Um, I as I was watching the video of the debris raining down, I was just crazy. So do they? They have to have a team where they're just like, hey guys. Again, sorry, mm-hmm. with the boxes, you're going to need to fill them. Put on your backpacks and <laughs> right. your masks. Um, Anna, do you feel any more confident about uh, SpaceX's <laughs> ventures? Uh, no comment. <laughs> um, no, I just think it's funny that there's so many test failures now that Elon Musk must be choosing mornings that are shrouded in dense fog in order to obscure the view. Like, oh, no, no, you just didn't see it. You didn't see it. <laughs> right. Um no, I don't know. I guess if I were SpaceX, I'd maybe like take a beat and spend more time in the lab. I mean, maybe it's just me, but like, are the comments trending a bit more negative towards SpaceX as we see these one after another on the, like on the website comments? I thought that they were, I don't know. This is the like fourth high profile issue since December. Mm-hmm. And well, while this is probably all very normal in an industry and a company that's developing, and this is obviously massive, like innovative technology you do kind of wonder like how much more before there's an impact on people's perceptions of their ability to do this safely and when you're 
high profile like Elon Musk, you have multiple companies to think about. Like, does this help when Tesla is also being investigated seemingly continuously for its autopilot technology and its potential involvement in like some of those recent Tesla crashes? Like, I don't know. It's just it's almost fitting of whatever image Elon Musk has cultivated online, which is sort of like off the cuff push yeah. it to the absolute max and see what happens kind of persona. You know, he's like not afraid of the fallout apparently. I don't know. I felt like as I was watching this one again, a, I thought the same thing about the fog. I'm like, okay, under the mat, you know, other than under the uh, shroud of darkness. Um, but I thought maybe that was a choice specifically if they were trying to uh, track things that landed during fog. Uh, the other thing I thought was maybe what we're watching right now is just like, the 30 second montage before we see, you know, the real story, you know, like all this trial and error is really like, I feel like maybe this is something that isn't normally as public. Um, and he's using that just to keep the SpaceX name out there. But like, I don't know. I, I remain hopeful. <laughs> How about you, Jeff? First of all, Anna, that was a great drop in there. If Musk is afraid of the fallout, that was well played. Um, do, do we know exactly how much these these things cost? We did. I mean, I, I've heard some different numbers. Yeah, no, they. Uh, I had it previously because they had it. It was hundreds of billions of dollars marked for just the Starship program alone. So there's, I mean, so regardless, I guess where I was going with it, and if you watch that video, first of all, they've got quite the team. I mean, like doing the the pregame. Oh, the commentary. I mean, the commentary. These oh, guys yeah. from NASA that are doing it, and when you see the big chunk of the rocket come down that is equal parts like incredible and terrifying i mean it mm -hmm. is to, to you guys point about having to pick stuff up i mean it's, it's crazy but ask you guys a question here with all the money and you said they're four for four in terms of failing mm -hmm. uh, with this particular uh rocket do you think musk is ever going to take spacex public i mean it's valued at over $70 billion right now. There is competition coming. It's not there yet at the level um, that, that SpaceX is probably too worried about it. But is he, do you think this is ever going to go public? Is he ever going to have to like really disclose how much they've spent on this project and what this stuff is really costing them? Anna? I mean, that's a great question. He's, he's uh, struggled with Tesla being a public company. Um, yeah. as we know, like it's paid off for him immensely in terms of like monetary value of his stock. But, um, you know, he's also threatened to take it private like more than once, um, because he doesn't like the scrutiny and the oversight and he doesn't like the sec. Yeah. So, um, I could see it being a challenge, especially when you're like burning through cash and, um, and you're Elon Musk, uh, and you tweet and you cause a big problem, whatever. Uh, but he's also like very, um, I don't know, like he's very confident in his ability to like sort of get, get, get away with whatever he needs to get away with to like continue to operate. So I don't know. I'm going to say um, maybe yes and no, because I'm thinking maybe SpaceX and Starship become separate entities. Because maybe like Starship is more of a space tourism play and maybe SpaceX is uh, going to be, maybe that would go public as more of their like satellite launches, more of the commercial business. And then they could kind of like spin off Starship as like, or whatever it was, is like Skunk Works or R&D or like more of the futuristic yeah. st mm -hmm. stuff. 
because I think there is, I think what SpaceX adds to the industry has tremendous value over here with the, you know, commercial satellite business. And then they use that to kind of fund going to Mars and the moon, yeah. et cetera. And uh, so also to your question, he says the, this starship program alone is going to cost 5 billion just to develop yeah. this aircraft. Yeah. So I don't know. They feel like that. Yeah. I feel like they're getting close. Well, I mean, I, I think this is obviously a, to some extent a facade that they're putting out like, yeah, whatever blew up. No big yeah. deal. This is part of the part of the process. But there are some people out there who are kind of, you know, grinning and rubbing their hands together. When you look at, I'm sure Boeing and Lockheed and there's a, there is a collection of companies that are coming for them. Yeah. So every time, they have a setback that brings competition a little bit closer to them in all these fronts, whether it is just the, the satellites and the, the stuff that they're doing for NASA and other government contracts or the more commercial things. I mean, there's competition there, too, with Branson and Bezos. So this is going to be interesting to see how this plays out. But eventually, I mean, they got to get it right. I mean, competition's mm-hmm. coming. So. Well, and is he going to have the same like laissez-faire attitude like with his other ventures, like the boring company? Like when he starts, you know, digging tunnels for the uh, Hyperloop technology under cities, and they collapse, is it going to be like, oh, guess we got a new pool downtown? Right, yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. I know, it's almost like a joke to him that he like is lighting money well, on this fire. Was, this was six <laughs> miles up. Now, granted, it blew up when it came, was coming back down. Mm-hmm. But what if something did happen at a higher elevation? You've got some pretty damaging parts falling from the sky. Well, uh, talking about it just going up six miles, uh, straight shooter, who always shoot straight on the website said that six miles down only 47 million nine hundred ninety nine thousand nine hundred ninety four miles to go to mars however straight shooter if they went during the closest point mars has ever been to the earth which was october 6 2020 that was only 38.6 million miles away so just have that off the top of your head just (laughs) oh yeah i read a book about it like in 97 (laughs) and i totally remember (laughs) I like the comment that said I, I would rather fly on a 737 Max and uh, ditto. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> the top story this week is actually pretty cool. It's GM's $9,000 pickup. Motor One reports that Wuling, a joint venture between GM and China's Syke Motor, has unveiled its debut pickup. The Zeng 2 will cost 58,800 Chinese yuan or just north of about $9,000 American. The truck is made more for utility than comfort. Likely it has a smaller cab with only a 1.5 liter engine that offers 99 horsepower. Not really close, but Ford is slated to debut a new small pickup that starts under $20,000. I mean, Anna, what are your thoughts on a cheap pickup? It was definitely exciting for our readership this week. Yeah, it really was. The story blew up. Well, I think when you say $9,000 pickup, the world listens. Mm-hmm. That's because the idea of having an entry-level pickup is so foreign to us in America. Like nowadays, pickups are on par with luxury vehicles in terms of both features and pricing. Um, according to Car Connection, pickup trucks on average cost about $11,000 more than other vehicles. And obviously, we know the three top-selling vehicles currently are the Ford F-Series the Dodge Ram and the Chevy Silverado. So in 2019, pickup prices hit a record high average sticker price that J.D. Power said was nearly $52,000. And get this. Yeah, I know. Like, so the Detroit Free Press reported that from 2008 to 2018, there was a 48% increase in the price for full-size light-duty pickups. 
and we're just going with it apparently. Like, (laughs) so I guess my question is like, does GM, or I I know you mentioned the Ford truck in development, Mm -hmm. you know, that's what $20,000 yeah. Yeah, at, at entry. So like, what does that cost once you add the features to it? I don't know. It just, I'm wondering if GM or the other big three, like, do they really have a big incentive to produce like a super cheap pickup for Americans? I don't, know that they do um, when you consider Americans appetite for these super pricey trucks. I mean, we're, we're paying them like, like, you know, auto, auto sales did not go down in 2020, despite the pandemic, like, oh, they went down slightly. Right. But like at the end of the year, they, um, they really came back up and the, the price of a new vehicle um, was higher than it ever was in 2020. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of that was trucks. Jeff, I feel like, you know, the F-150 in the suburb is like, it's like the new soccer mom van, you know? Yeah. Just no, like, I'd, I'd agree. Yeah. I think what's, what's really happened with trucks and the reason why the price has gone up is because there are more bells and whistles on it, more features, more functions, more creature comforts, if you will. Um, there's been this merging of utility and comfort, aesthetics, class, whatever your style, whatever you want to say. Because these new trucks, yeah, they're, they're, I mean, they're amazing the way they ride. They don't ride like a truck like when we were growing up. Oh, yeah. Um, obviously all the other, um, like I said, amenities within inside. So I think what this really would be an interesting case study in is, are there still folks looking for just the utility element of a truck or has it, or has things shifted so much that we want all of this with whatever vehicle we're, we're driving? You know, for me personally, I mean, this sounds really interesting, this type of vehicle, because either, I mean, when we were growing up, I went to a small, you know, farming based um, a small city, a farming based city, a small high school, all that. Guys wanted trucks. Yeah. Trucks are expensive. Okay. Yeah. As far as when you compare them to a car. And if you're getting a used truck, it can be a ton of miles on it, probably some mechanical issues, whatever. You can get a new truck for this amount. Now, the, the catch there is it is not the most aesthetically appealing vehicle. I mean, I was pretty hard on the flying car last week. Mm-hmm. This one sort of fits into that <laughs> mode too. It's It's not real pretty, but. When you look at it, it does have an extended cab, does have nice big box for as far as hauling stuff and, and uh, whatever you would need. I don't know. I, I, I think there would be a market for this in those sectors where somebody is willing to say, I just need a truck. I just need yeah. the utility part of it. But again, it's become so ingrained to have both. I don't know if people would shift back here in the U.S. Yeah. I think in a lot of other areas, yes. Yeah. I think back like when I had my old S10, you know, with the blue S10 with the red door. Yep. And uh, I, you know, I used it when I was doing construction and roofing and it was something I needed. I didn't need more than one other passenger seat, mostly because then we're getting into trouble. I mean, people were also sitting in the back because different life. Um, But I agree with, I would, I would be really interested to see how this did, because I feel like there would be a ton of people that would buy it and be like, oh man, it's uncomfortable to sit on. It's like, that's because you didn't pay for cotton in the seat. Uh, Anna, any interest in a $9,000 truck? Well, I, if it's $9,000, <laughs> I feel like people would buy it, but yeah, just it, like it would never vehicle. be $9,000 in the U S that's the thing. Like, you know, yeah, I don't, that's a good point. I don't see that happening. No, it's, I mean, but if they could get that price point, it could almost be something that, I mean, I don't know, not that you would do it like in car sharing or anything like that, but, um, how many times are you looking for a truck? And it's gotten to the point now where I have friends with trucks that are so damn nice that they won't let me use it. What do you got to yeah. move? You got to yeah. move a washer and dryer? What does it got? 
felt on the bottom? No. Well, you can't touch it. Yeah. It's like <laughs> someone really turned me down. Anyway, BG. According to Motor Trend, the cheapest 2021 pickup that you can buy is a Toyota Tacoma that starts at $25,630. And then I looked up the world's cheapest, cheapest truck, <laughs> and you just really quickly get to a golf cart with a flatbed. <laughs> they're calling a lot of weak things trucks out trucks, there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, moving on to our next seg- segment. In case you missed it, um, my in case you missed it this week, as Volkswagen's planned name change that turned out to be an apparent hoax. On March 29th, Volkswagen announced plans to change its brand name in the United States to Volkswagen. Around this time of year, I try to check everything twice. This year, cauliflower peeps almost got me because they seemed even more (laughs) realistic than changing Volkswagen to Volkswagen. Now, when I first heard the news, I admit that I bought it mostly because I've been in those boardrooms and brainstorming sessions when people are just like, you know what? Volkswagen, Volkswagen, the world's electrifying. And I'm just like, and as I'm reading the story, I'm just like, oh man, they got away with one. But it turns out that uh, there's a lot of people angry with the multi-billion dollar automaker and it's prank because why would somebody like VW have such a hard sell on it? And I just felt like this entire story, they really nailed it in terms of like a ridiculous April Fool's. And then everyone kind of just needs to take a breath in their anger over VW confirming a story about Volkswagen. I don't know. Uh, Anna, what do you think? Were people reasonably upset or did it kind of get blown out of proportion? I think that journalists were reasonably upset because... Of course she does. <laughs> I can hear you. You have, uh, Here is why. Here is why. Mm-hmm. Because, I, yeah, April Fool's prank stories are funny. I'm fine with that. But <clears throat> multiple media sources called Volkswagen and asked them to comment. And they mm-hmm. said, is this legit? And their marketing people said yes. So that's where, to me, we diverge on this, like, still being legitimate of the company to do. That's fake. Like, at that point, like, if it's just a a prank then you just no comment your way through it you don't like continue you don't confirm the story to double down on it yeah yeah so i i thought that was like an odd choice by vw i'll just say that and mm-hmm. it, it actually made me think like maybe this was legit but vw was kind of testing the waters and to see if it was going to fly and then when it got panned so hard like day one then they pulled back and they're like oh just kidding yep we mm-hmm. were just kidding the whole time i don't know do they have a new ceo i mean jeff that's just this feels like an executive looking to make a make a shakeup. This sounds like somebody came up with a kind of a unique marketing strategy, and then they took it too far. Yeah, um, and I think the the journalists do have a right to be upset. Maybe not to the extent they were, but they have they have a point. I'll give them because, like Anna said, they they're like, "Are you sure this is the real thing?" And and they were so adamant about it. So I think it was just a marketing promotion gone too far. But we rail on Musk for not just like staying quiet sometimes. VW, if there's an automaker who just needs to like do their thing and not bring added attention to what they're doing, <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, come on, Volkswagen, you had your diesel gate thing. You've paid out billions of dollars worldwide for that scandal. Just relax. I would purchase a Volkswagen ID4, which was just so much cooler sounding than a VW hippie van. <laughs> Jeff, what is your, in case you missed it this week? 
so let me ask you guys something. You know, we're of the generation where we can still remember arcades. If you're going to go to an arcade when you were a kid, what was it like? Was there a game that you just kind of gravitated towards? Anna, was there one that you really like? That was your game? Um, I like the Ninja Turtles games. Oh, Ninja Turtles. Yeah, mine was actually the X-Men arcade game that That's our cool. associate Chuck and I just beat in <laughs> Chicago not too long ago. That was a great one. Yeah. I was always kind of, I always liked the driving games, like Excite a Bike. Oh, yeah. Love that one. Yeah. So anyway, but I got them me thinking about that because we did a story on Pizza Hut. Mm-hmm. Actually, they're, they're coming off a really great fourth quarter, obviously with the pandemic, a lot of folks ordering food. So to try to keep that going a little bit, they're, they're tapping into this 80s nostalgia. They're calling it the Nostalgia Campaign, where basically on their boxes, there's a VR code. You snap that with your smartphone and you can play Pac-Man. Mm-hmm. It's the game they chose on the back of the box. I thought it was kind of cool just because it does bring back some uh, some memories. I was never drawn to Pac-Man specifically, but it was there. I played it. I mean, and Pizza Hut too. Pizza Hut was a huge deal. Like mm-hmm. I grew up in a small town again. Like Pizza Hut was like 20 minute drive or like yeah. on the way home from the Brewers game. And worth it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was awesome. It was so... This like hit just checked a lot of boxes for me. I thought it was kind of a cool story that they're doing this. Yeah. Uh, Anna, did this bring back memories of Book It? Oh, I loved this story because I loved Book It. Mm-hmm. And yeah, when I was a kid, like to to Jeff's point about the nostalgia or whatever they're calling the campaign, like old Pizza Hut was the best. Like they had that jukebox in there and you would listen to like once bitten, twice shy on there and just like <laughs> torture your parents when it was book it day and get your little pizza. It was the best. Yeah. the Or the Pizza Hut buffet. Oh, the buffet. Yeah. Just in that like discouraging look you got from the host as they like walked you and your family. They're and like. <laughs> knew you were staying for a while. I know. <laughs> and they were like constantly fishing peas out of the chocolate pudding. Oh, man. <laughs> just talking about my life at Rockies right there. <laughs> <laughs> the trials and tribulations of a salad bar. Oh my goodness. Those peas are everywhere. Um, no, I thought it was a really cool story too. Like, um, although I do think the same executive that uh, put out Volkswagen put out nostalgia. Let's just stop combining words. Um, <laughs> but over, I think that this subconsciously, because uh, you wrote the story, Jeff, and then that evening, uh, Carrie writes me to say, what do you think about pizza tonight? <laughs> I'm just like, oh, she got the Perfect. newsletter. Easy, <laughs> <Perfect>. yes. <laughs> um, and it was still delicious. Um, Anna, what's your in case you missed it this week? So I chose the story we ran earlier this week titled The Five Most Dangerous States for Drivers because I want to bring a big downer to the end of the podcast after that really fun story about pizza. <laughs> no, I actually chose this one because I was personally stunned by one of the statistics that was cited in there. Like, I know we've heard that road deaths were up in 2020, and the theory was that even though there might have been less traffic, that those who were out in their vehicles, at least during the early part of the pandemic, might be those prone to more risky behavior. A theory I felt at the time was maybe hard to prove, but um, but this is crazy. So the report says that Americans drove 13% fewer miles last year, yet experienced a 24% increase in the rate of road-related deaths which was the largest year-over-year increase in 96 years. Wow. I know. So I guess I bring this up because it's a reminder that we're working our butts off over here to keep ourselves safe from the coronavirus. But there's some basic stuff like road safety that we can easily undo our progress on in a short amount of time. And keep in mind that the worst year for deaths or the the biggest increase year-over-year in 96 years 
comes after decades of development of critical safety systems in vehicles. So it's certainly something not to take for granted. I think, um, it, you know, it's just a reminder of like how we really got to be vigilant out there. Um, and then in case you're curious, the states with the most motor vehicle deaths in 2020 were um, starting with number one, Mississippi, Wyoming, Arkansas, South Carolina, and Montana. So be safe out there, folks. Um, you know, I just thought that story maybe could have used a, a little boost um, and, and a reminder to people out there. I definitely know that driving on the Beltline, people are lawless right now. And yeah. fast, right? Yeah. Like yeah. just so fast. Yeah, it's, I mean... And when the, I mean, the kids aren't, weren't in the car. So I like to think of myself as a fairly reckless driver, driver as well. And these guys are flying past me and I'm just like, well, come on. Yeah. Like, uh, I don't know. It's, uh, we're just opening up that sh- the shoulders of the belt line now or of our, uh, you know, of our major highway around here. And people are just driving anywhere they can to pass you. It's yeah. freaking me out. No, I, I- yeah, I mean, you guys said it all. It is. It's ridiculous to see these numbers and just what we've experienced on a very local basis. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's oh, scary. sorry. That's right. We can't always keep it local. Sorry to the people that think we talk too locally sometimes. Matt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just so everybody knows, David just lets things roll off his show. He do- doesn't bother yeah. him at all. He just, very easy going. Yeah, I'm, I'm to criticism. I'm right not there. still put off by the attack at the beginning of this episode. Definitely fine with that already. No. Yeah. <laughs> if you have any constructive criticism or what you would view as constructive, send it to David at IEN.com. He is the one that will take it. Mm-hmm. And then print it out and, and then, put it on my cube and, and then, then find where you live. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> he will drown that piece of paper in his bitter tears until right. the ink runs. I'll make it into a button (laughs) (laughs) and make my family wear it. Long story. Anyway, Anna, your final thoughts this week. No, I don't have one. Sounds good. Jeff. Um, so for, uh, my wife just had her birthday recently. She got a new iPad and keyboard Mm -hmm. and along with buying that, she actually got a free subscription to the Apple streaming service. Oh, okay. We've talked about this. There's like so much stuff out there, but I just have to give a plug to, and I know I'm late coming to the game here. Ted Lasso. Have you guys oh. watched that show at all? I heard that it's yeah. so good. It I is didn't... fantastic. Okay. Yeah. So my closing thought is, if you're on the fence, get it for a month and watch this show. It's actually really good. I thought it was just going to be like Jason Sudeikis SNL for 30 minutes, but yeah. it's really good. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to finishing that up this week. Well, and while you're on the Apple platform, please make sure to leave us a positive review. <laughs> Segway. <laughs> Uh, like, subscribe, and also share the podcast. That'll really help us out a lot. Boom. And as Anna said, you can reach me at david at in.com mm-hmm. or Anna and Jeff at in.com as well. I don't check mine. No. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> um, I had one other final thought. Uh, last week, the flying car, the Aeromobile, is actually the Aeromobile. And uh, just got a real bad pronunciation on that one um, from my source. So apologies. Uh, Anna? Second on a final thought? Uh, Nope. See you guys later. (laughs) Very good. Well, for Jeff and Anna, I'm David Manti, and this is the Today in Manufacturing podcast. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast.